Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the All Things Reconsidered podcast. Uh, I am Brandon. And I'm Joey. And uh, today we have a special guest. As you can see, we have on the monitor, Pastor Brian Zond. Yes, thank you, Pastor Brian Zond, for being with us. Yeah, my privilege. (laughs) If anyone's been watching our show for a while, you have heard us mention this man's name quite a bit. We've been reading a lot of your books, uh, especially this year. And so uh, your your books have influenced us greatly on all sorts of different things, from Christian nationalism to, I know, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. uh, went through a lot of the members of our church, actually. And so um, we're really excited to talk about all that stuff. But here on All Things Reconsidered, uh, we really spend our time focusing on the topic of Christian uh, faith deconstruction. And, and rebuilding a stronger faith, uh, free from fundamentalism and free from some of the uh, American evangelicalism uh, ideas. And so your Water to Wine book really resonated with us. Yeah. And so we really want to talk to you about that story. And you have an upcoming book on the topic uh, called When Everything's on Fire. Uh, so we're really hoping to, to get into that as well. Uh, but before we do, uh, something else we wanted to talk to you about before we get into all that is uh, your recent sermon series that we've been watching called Finding God in the Music. Yes. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of that. I'm, I'm just a big music fan in general. Um, I'm a, yeah. one of the worship leaders at our church, um, but I just I love music. Mm-hmm. Um, and Christian music oftentimes isn't good, so we look for it <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> Um, so I, I really do appreciate that sermon series because it's something that I find myself doing often is trying to figure out where God is in just the hearts of man in general. And music is such an easy way to do that. Yeah, you know, it's it's terribly self-indulgent of me to do that series. <laughs> <laughs> but, but people like it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, people do like it. So... I guess it's a win-win situation. Yeah. I don't claim that it's anything more than me kind of having some fun in the summer sure. <laughs> for 13 seasons now. Right. Uh, I, there was time earlier on when I tried a little bit to be more diverse in my music, and I gave that up. I just say, these are songs I like <laughs> right. and that I get inspiration from and I could do a sermon with. And so, but strange to be told, people do seem to like it. Yes, and so I, I just keep doing it. But um, well, what, it's, it's it's actually a lot of fun for me. Oh, that's yeah. Right. Well, well I'm, what's, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad every time I hear someone say I like it, I've done I think seventy eight of them. Wow. <laughs> there, there, there is a Spotify playlist of every song that I've used in Finding God. You know, it started yeah. out as Finding God in on your iPod. Yeah, right? just kind of kind of rhyme, you know, and all that, but but. You know, eventually that became archaic. Right, right. And so we had to change the name. But Well, what's just one of... I mean, I've been doing it so long that music formats have changed during the process of <laughs> doing this. I know that for me... Um, your use of music, especially in your books, was really interesting, the way that you have Spotify playlists to go along with your books. Um, so I'm also interested in asking, what is the opening song of the playlist for your new book? I, I would have to look it up, but let me, let's just let's, oh, just, let's that's just see good it. to know. So you though, do actually you do have, have a, playlist. a playlist for it, all right? <laughs> I, I do. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be. It's not in the book. Probably gotcha. shouldn't be. Probably won't be. But I can, you know, put it out there. Uh, it looks like it's the Battle of Evermore, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> oh, Led Zeppelin. Nice. You know, I agree with virtually everything that you preach, but there's one thing that I disagree with, Pastor Brian. That I well, I think that you and I might disagree I with. There's five things I preach. But go ahead. <laughs> Well, one thing I think we probably would fight on is that you seem to think that Led Zeppelin is the greatest classic rock band. And see, I would put Pink Floyd above there. I think Pink Floyd is just a little bit above. Nothing but respect for the Floyd. (laughs) It's Zeppelin. I get it. I get it. (laughs) I love Pink Floyd. I'm not going to, you're not going to find me speaking ill of David Gilmour and And Roger Waters. Roger Waters and the rest. Well, what's just one of your favorite songs out of all of those 70 plus songs that you've covered? What, what's one that you can give us as an example that you preach from? Square One. Okay. Uh, Tom Petty. I can't quote the lyrics. Well, I know you recently did uh, Tom Petty's uh, song with uh, Ringo and George Harrison, um, uh, Won't Back Down. That was a, a great one. Square One is a song where the lyrics really are 
almost telling my story. This is a nice mm. segue to Wanted to Wine. I don't know if I'll read all the lyrics, but you know, I know you want to talk about Water to Wine and oh, you've yes. read it. And yes. so just keep that in mind and we'll talk about it, but hear these lyrics. Had to find some higher ground, had some fear to get around. You can't say what you don't know. Later on, won't work no more. Last time through, I hid my tracks so well I could not get back. Yeah, my way was hard to find. Can't sell your soul for peace of mind. Mm. Square one, my slate is clear. Rest your head on me, my dear. It took a world of trouble. It took a world of tears. It took a long time to get back here. Let uh, I me mean, a few a few more lyrics. Um, it's a dark victory you won, but you also lost. Told yourself you were satisfied, but it never came across. And then just the chorus. That's well, almost telling my water wine story. And I felt like it was a. I don't. I preached it probably five or six years ago. You can you can go to our website, a Word of Life. No, it's wolc dot com. We never have been able to get Word of Life. <laughs> You're trying to buy it from some little church somewhere and they won't sell to us. Right, but, right. Uh, it's wolc.com. Okay. And you can use the search function, finding God in the music, and they're all there somewhere or another. You'll find sure. it. Or you could just probably search square one and that'll bring you directly to that sermon. So I, okay. I really do kind of tell my water to wine story probably around, it's probably five or six years ago. I think it's, it's, it's a pretty vulnerable sermon, if I remember right. Yeah, that's um, actually one of the first sermons of years that I had listened to. Um, and it just, it hit me in a real way because being in, you know, church leadership now myself and trying to figure out how to navigate deconstructing, you know, fundamentalism and evangelicalism and all this stuff and how everybody has a hundred thousand opinions and how you're supposed to hold on to every single one of theirs and trying to be all things to all people. And you just really can't be. And, uh, just hearing that from somebody who's been through that battle and came out on the other side with a stronger faith was it, it's impacted me a lot over the past several months. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And uh, according to your book, this really started in 2004, or at least that's where you officially said that you were leaving uh, the uh, American evangelicalist model. Um, but now it seems to be a growing trend where people, especially in our generation, are walking away from American fun- or Christian fundamentalism. So my question is, why? I think this is a question that pastors all over the country are asking, and I don't know if any of them really are coming to the right answer. So I want to ask you, why do you think people right now are leaving the evangelical church? Um, something has come of age. This is what I deal with a little bit more in my forthcoming book. It's it's all done. It comes out November 9th. I have an advanced reader copy right here. Oh, nice. There oh, it is. Um, Very, nice. Very excited to read that myself. It'll be, it'll be a hardback book, but this is just the kind of the cheapy paperback for, you know, advanced reader purposes. <laughs> right. Uh, there's a foreword. There's a prelude. But the book actually begins like this. Once upon a time, we all believed in God. In an earlier epoch, we believed in God or gods as effortless, effortlessly as we believed in the firm ground beneath our in the expansive sky above our heads. An ancient Greek poet expressed it like this in a hymn to Zeus, later reappropriated by the Apostle Paul. In him we live and move and have our being. For the ancients, the divine was as eminent as the air they but that was before everything was on fire. That was before the conflagration of world wars, before the skies over Auschwitz were darkened with human ash, before the ominous mushroom clouds over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, before the world witnessed twin pillars of smoke rising into the September sky over Manhattan, before long-venerated institutions were engulfed in the flames of scandal, before the scorched earth assault on Christianity by its cultured despisers. Today, it's harder to believe harder to hold on to the faith. 
and nearly impossible to embrace religion with unjaded innocence. We live in a time when everything is on fire and the faith of millions is in peril. That's the opening paragraph. Wow. Um, it's, it's been a long time coming, this moment of crisis. I think no one foresaw it more clearly than Frederick Nietzsche, mm-hmm. who I have a conflicted relationship with. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's brilliant and wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's right 85% of the time, but it's the 15% that counts the most. Sure. <laughs> So um, he foresaw that the Western world was hurtling into a world without God. Unlike the contemporary new atheists, though, he did not necessarily react to this with jubilation. He really did think it was time for Western society to move beyond God, but he wasn't at all certain that this was going to turn out well. Gotcha. And uh, he writes about it. I don't want to get too much into this. This is when everything's <laughs> on fire. We want to talk about water to wine. But but I just think it's, I mean, being angry with modern people for losing their faith is a little like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, something has happened. It, it This is not... Suddenly, people just woke up on the wrong side of the bed and decided to have a moment of atheism or something. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. We are facing particular challenges. Uh, and the challenges that are hurtling at us right now, American evangelical Christianity is particularly ill-equipped to handle. Sure. I think I had the, the providential good luck to deal with this, uh, you know, almost 20 years earlier. And so my water to wine journey, that's the term that I use to describe what I was, because I never thought of it as deconstruction. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, we weren't using that term to describe this phenomenon 17 years ago when I first began to have that experience. Right. Deconstruction is actually a philosophical term that comes from Jean Derrida. We won't get into all that. <laughs> um, so what happened with me, let me just, let me just sort of give it, give a summary here. If okay. That's all right. Yeah. I was about to ask. Um, it Thank you. That'd be great. Yeah. So, so here's my story, you know, extremely abbreviated. I, uh, I was the high school Led Zeppelin freak. Liked Pink Floyd, but I was the high school Led Zeppelin freak. <laughs> Fair enough. In the 1970s, you have to you have to imagine me super long hair and and rebellious troublemaker. Oh yeah, that was me. And then everybody called me Fry. Nobody called me Brian, and certainly nobody called me Pastor Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, Fry, and, and that's what everybody knew me as. And Fry had this out of the blue really largely unanticipated encounter with Jesus Christ. And just overnight, I went from being a high school Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. And it surprised everybody. I mean, it, it was, people knew of it. Teachers knew of it. Everybody knew about it. And they would say to me, Fry, I can't believe what's happened to you. And I said, tell me about it. I can't believe it either. <laughs> Same. But it's happened. It's happened. I mean, I it's happened. Right. And uh, I was without without choice, really. I, I was a I was a leader from the moment of encountering Jesus. I mean, among my peers, you know, right. I was, so other kids in high school were coming to Jesus, and I was their leader. And by the time I was seventeen, I was leading a ministry called the Catacombs, which was a. This is during the Jesus movement. You may have heard of it. I know you're yeah. the children, but you may have. Heard of it. <laughs> um, and it was mostly a music venue for the Jesus music scene. But, you know, it also had aspects of an assembled gathering where I was primarily the teacher because I, I had been a Christian for 10 minutes longer than the other ones. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And, and uh, that then turned into word of life church by the time I was 22 in November of 81. So it'll be 40 years. Wow. 
uh, this November. Our church will celebrate its 40th anniversary in November, but its roots go back further. So I tell people, I say this in all these podcasts when I tell the story, I've been, see, I was doing the work of a pastor by the time I was 17. I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds, that's true. Um, and so I'm not saying that that's not a plan. That's not the way to approach it. That's not what to do, but it's what happened. Sure. And, and, and the spirit of God was in it. You know, what can I say? Did I know anything? Not much. <laughs> right. Did I do anything right? Hardly anything at all. But, but there was faith and sincerity and passion and the church the church was just a little church for seven years, and then it took off. Okay. Really grew big uh, in the 90s. And, and as I look back on that time, it was exciting. It's fun. I'll be honest. To have a church that's really growing fast at one time was, was recognized as one of the 20 fastest-growing churches in America. Mm. By wow. people who keep score, <laughs> ta-da! You know uh, that that was. I don't regret that time. It was exciting, heady, thrilling, fun. Um, and then then we kind of just settled in, and we're and we're doing good. And now it's about the turn of the century. It's you know two thousand, and I'm hitting forty, and. I, I'm a little bit uneasy. Right. Mm-hmm. Everything's great. Everything's great. By the metrics that Americans like to measure success, mm-hmm. word of life had arrived. Right. You know, don't change anything. It's you've, you know, you worked so hard to get here. Just right. Just ride it. Out, the coast. Baby. Yep. But I was finding that harder to do. I was finding a deeper sense of dis-ease within me. Unease. You know, I was like, ah, there's nothing wrong, but it doesn't seem like it's, thick enough. It feels too thin, too watery, too weak. Sure. And so I started, I didn't know what to do really. And I started reading three different kinds of things. I started reading church fathers, which I'd never really, well, not hardly at all, but I thought, okay, I, I, maybe I just need to go back to the beginning of Christianity. Right. I mean, I've been reading the Bible all my life. I knew the new Testament, but what about, what about the first writers on Christian faith? So I began to sure. read patristics. Okay. I also began to read philosophy, which I'd always had an interest in. But since, since you know, the Jesus movement led me into the charismatic movement, and I was more or less a charismatic, and this may come as a shock to you, but most charismatic pastors don't read philosophy. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> that's something that's always so funny to me, because it— you know, Christianity, so much of Paul's writing is influenced by philosophers of his time. Of course. And so I'm like, why do we hate philosophy so much? Like, Paul loved it. <laughs> yeah, so I was like reading philosophy on the slides, like, you know, make sure no one was looking and <laughs> yeah. reading Kierkegaard or yeah, right, right, right. Plato or whatever. Uh, so, I, so, so I was doing that. And then I just thought, well, I just need to kind of really immerse myself in the Western canon of literature. So I was just reading the great classics in Western literature. And I was doing that for four years, and that was changing me. But it reached a crisis in 2004. And I won't tell the whole story, but I'd be, I I look back. I almost feel like I'm looking at someone else. Well, I sure. look back now. Seven years. I'd, be, I, I'd reached a crisis point. Where some, and nobody, there was nothing wrong externally. Everything was great. Right. I promise you many, many pastors in America would have traded places with me. Yeah, I'm sure. That things were going good, but I wasn't satisfied. And I didn't, I didn't, you know, the problem is you don't know what you don't know. Right. And I didn't, I just knew there had to, to be more, but I did, had no idea what it was. Yeah. And so I began the first 22 days of 2004 doing nothing but fasting and praying, sleeping at night, preaching when I was supposed to. That's all I did for 22 days. I didn't go anywhere. Wow. I found out you could drive back and forth between my house and the church for 22 <laughs> days in one tank of gas. I didn't get I didn't get a haircut. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't go to a store. All I did, I would get up in the morning, go to our prayer room, prayer chapel. And I spent all day there. I would preach what I'm supposed to. 
That's about basically all I did. And I didn't eat. I got down to 130 pounds. Wow. And uh, people thought I was sick or dying. I kind of was dying. I mean, a whole first half of life self was dying off. Sure. Uh, it It wasn't a... So I came through that time. And here's a story that I tell. It's in the book. Mm-hmm. A little while after that time, th- this was an act of desperation on my part. I, I couldn't do it again. <laughs> if somebody said, Brian, you need to fast 22 days. I said, I, 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 it's not in me to do that again. It sounds no. very hard. <laughs> I hope to never do anything like that again. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that it shows you something of the dead, but it's not a pattern. Don't nobody that's listening to this. Don't do not go do that. <laughs> Just don't. Don't do it. Um, well, I know that God did speak to you with five specific words, and we have yeah. a couple of questions prepared for each of those five words. But before we do, Brandon, do you want to ask something? Um, I would say so. As some, like I said, you know, working in—I'm not working in church, but I, I'm heavily involved in our church. Um, I know whenever you started going through this changed theologically, a lot of people started leaving your church. Um, yeah, like a thousand or more. <laughs> yeah. So how did you walk through that and seeing those people at the grocery store? Because that's something that we've encountered at our church as well, mm-hmm. where, you know, people have left and it's kind of that awkwardness of like, hey, you, how yeah. you been? Um, yeah. Because there's, I feel like there's rarely a formal, we are leaving your church and this is why. And it's more of people just kind of drifting away. Um, so and then how saying did you mean things about you online? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you find yourself navigating that well, change? Well, it was an enormously painful experience. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where, um, I don't know that everyone can appreciate how painful it was. Yeah. My wife and my wife, Perry, we have three sons. They're all married now. As of last week, last oh, week, I appreciated my young son's wedding. Wow. Uh, yeah. We're just happy as we can be with our three daughters-in-law. Um, but we always kind of joked that we had, we had, three sons and one daughter and our daughter was word of life church. And cause we gave our lives to it. Yeah. And if you have a thousand people leave mm-hmm. and leave saying things like, I think, you know, pastor Brian's backslidden. Right. When I felt like, no, you're closer to God than you ever been. I'm front sliding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm in the mountain. I'm, you know, uh, there was never a question that what I was doing was right, but that doesn't really mitigate too much of the pain when people are saying terrible things about you. People that you know and have loved mm-hmm. and have led to the Lord and right. baptized and maybe baptized their kids, married them, married their kids. I mean, done yeah. life with them. Right. And after 20 years, they're leaving. That was a, oh, terribly painful. And if you read the book, Water to Wine, you'll see that. But as I look back on that book now that I wrote probably, I don't remember when I wrote it, 2015, 16, something like that. Um, I think I was still feeling some of the pain when I wrote So I softened it. Mm-hmm. I didn't really talk about it. I mean, it, it's worse than what I let on in the book. Well, sure. Now, I just want to jump, I want to jump right in here and say this because I don't truly that time of pain is over. I don't feel that. Well, I can show you the scars, but they don't hurt anymore. Right, right, right. And so so my wife and I, we are happy and we're doing great and everything's wonderful and all of that. So you don't have to like you know, <laughs> feeling sorry. I'm okay. I'm okay. okay. Well, good. Um, but how I made it through that thing, I, I really do. I can tell you three things that happened that that I needed probably all three to make it through. And by the grace of God, all three were there. Number one. Perry was with me. I mean, I wasn't bringing her along. She wasn't bringing me along. We were making these discoveries of a richer, more substantive faith simultaneously. Right. Yeah. So there was never, there was never, uh, never once a disagreement among us about what we were learning and growing in. Right. We weren't necessarily reading the same books, but, you know, if Perry reads a book, she tells me about it. I read a book, I tell her sure, about it. So sure. the vision of labor, you know, we get more books that way. Right. <laughs> and uh, 
So, so we were, we, Perry was with me and that was never a, and when I say Perry was with me, I don't, I want to stress, I wasn't leading her along. Sure. She wasn't, we were just together. We're walking together. Right. This. Yeah. So that was, that was the first saving grace. Okay. Uh, the second one was at that very time, two friends came into my life and they're still my, probably my two closest friends, Joe Beach and Brad Jerzak. Mm. Um, and these are guys that I text with every single day. Yeah. And I mean, I have today, you know, and probably not for the last time today. Right. Cause you know, I'll find, I'll find something funny to right. text to them or <laughs> yeah. whatever, but, you know, and, uh, and, and so they were going through their own journeys. Joe's a pastor in, in uh, Denver and uh, Brad Jerzak is in Abbotsford, British Columbia. He was a pastor at the time. Now he's uh professor of theology at St. Stephen's University in Canada. Um, but so I had, so I had these two friends that were going with me, you know, you, you need your wife, your spouse, but it's good to have some friends. Yeah, too, absolutely. Yep. Sometimes you want to lay everything on them. And the third thing was, it was at this very time that I was learning how to pray. Well, you know, I mean, I've been a Christian since I was a teenager in ministry from almost day one, you tried to pray, but I didn't know how to pray well, but I began to learn how to pray well. And that's where, my prayer school came from, which is out of my own experience. Right. But learning to pray well kept me from being too damaged in my soul. If I hadn't been able, if I hadn't learned how to, if I wasn't beginning to learn how to pray well, I think the damage to my soul during that time would have been maybe too severe to continue in ministry. Sure. And so those three things my wife, my friends, and learning how to sit with Jesus in prayer uh, well, got me through that time. Well, I know that um, I, I was... Although, let me, I want to I want to add one more thing. Okay. Ask, I, wanna, I, <laughs> I feel like i got to add this. Because when I tell it like that, if I'm not careful, it sounds like it was nothing but a bleak time. Right. It was a, it was a period of five, six years, maybe a little more, that was very strange in the sense that, yes, I hear now I've been talking about some of the pain and the pain was real and it was powerful. Right. But it was also a thrilling, exciting time. Right. You know, I was, I was at last discovering the rich kind of faith that I'd been looking for all of my life. See, I never had a crisis of faith about Jesus. I believed in Jesus. I just reached the point where I decided or felt came face to face with the fact that Jesus deserved a better Christianity than I knew. Absolutely. Yeah, right. And so, so what was in question was not Jesus, but it was Christianity American style. Right. So as I was discovering this rich, substantive, historic faith, it was, I was more excited about being a Christian, more thrilled than ever yeah. in my life. But at the same time, it was causing me pain because of all the rejection and loss that I was enduring. All right. So I wanted to say, because it wasn't all negative. A right. lot of it was beautiful. R- right. Absolutely. And um, to get into some of that, um, you know, some of the more beautiful sides of, of how you evolved uh, spiritually, um, let's talk about, um, I had some other questions I wanted to ask you, but just to make sure I, I can fit all of this in in the time we have, let's talk about the five words that God spoke to you. Yeah. Um, so he, according in your book, you write that God spoke to you the word words cross, mystery, eclectic community, and revolution, and how each of these were a response to the type of Christianity you were used to. And um, I just have a couple of questions for each one of those. So if we start with cross, before I get into to my question about it, could you just take us through this first word and let us know what God spoke to you about the cross? Oh. I would say God began to speak to me about the cross and is still speaking to me about the cross. And it seems to have no end. And I suspect that's the way it'll be. In fact, the book I'm writing right now is in working title. And it's going to be the title is uh, (laughs) the word between the worlds and it's on the cross. But um, see what happened was is, is I came into the faith in the Jesus movement. That led me into the charismatic movement, which I describe as good until it wasn't. The charismatic movement just sort of, there wasn't, there wasn't a decision made along the way. It just, you know, you're on this journey, right. on this path. And that leads into kind of the word of faith thing. Yep. 
which which initially had some life to it, and I think think was had positive aspects, but then it became more and more uh, materialist, yeah, more and more uh, corrupted by it. Simply became a religious version of American greed, right? Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. and so that was part certainly of what I was reacting to. And so what do we find at the center of the Christian faith? We don't find a message of success in life. We don't find a self-help seminar. We don't find uh, a message on how, you know, be rich and good looking. Yeah. We find a cross. And so I thought, well, what does this mean? And I had to just, I had to return to, the cross as the centrality of the gospel and the Christian message. And I found it and I'm continuing to find it to be the very antithesis of what is typically valued in, um, in the American culture. See, one of the ways I don't think it's going to work much longer. It probably has already ceased to work, but mm-hmm. certainly during the nineties, if you, if your primary goal was to increase your church numerically. This is how you do it. Now, I don't, I don't think anybody sat around and actually thought this through. I, I think people acted in good faith in general. Sure. But, but what you do is you identify the assumed cultural values of America, what people already want. Right. And then you just slap a Jesus fish on it or right. find a Bible verse, you know. But, but what right. you're really saying is what people already think and believe and desire and want. Yep. Well, the cross cuts across all of that. Yes. Uh, the cross is never a message that is going to be popular with the masses. Right. Yeah, that's no, true. And so, so, so it, was the, it was the cross that led me away from what I began to call easy, cheesy, cotton candy in Christianity. Right. Cotton right. Christianity. And so, um, I mean, I don't even know what else to say about it. I mean, right. I, if you st- if I get talking on the cross, I'm going to talk for five hours. <laughs> oh yeah, um, but 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 that there was this instinct that came in the form of a word from the Lord to say, "Okay, BZ, where you you want to you want to make a transition? You want to you want to navigate this time right? First word, cross. Right. Get wow. to the cross." Wow. Uh, understand Christianity in the light of the cross. And so you, and I did, I did. And so you, and you, I'm still learning. he showed you that basically evangelical Christianity has cheapened the image of the cross and forgotten its real meaning in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here I, I need, I'm going to throw in a little caveat. I never at any point in my life ever identified as an evangelical. I just oh, never yeah? did. Okay. I, I identified as a charismatic. Okay. And uh, charismatics, Jesus, the Jesus movement, the charismatic, we would say evangelical, that's Baptist. We're not Baptists. <laughs> Baptists weren't even like us, you know. Right. And uh, it, w- it was the culture wars that drove everything under the same kind of tent. Sure. And so, so what I told my church in 2004, I didn't say I'm leaving evangelicalism because that wouldn't have made there. sense to anyone in our congregation. They would have said, we're evangelicals. I didn't know that. <laughs> right, right. I, I said I'm packing my bags from the charismatic movement and moving on. Wow. Now I know today because of culture wars, you have uh, people like uh, Robert Jeffress, pastor of First Baptist Dallas. That's an evangelical. Right. And Paula White. That's a charismatic. All together. Because of culture wars, right? But actually, they're quite different. And uh, um, so, anyway, that was just a little point. But but what I'm saying, I think, certainly applies to uh, evangelical Christianity, but especially charismatic Christianity, which I, I see today is particularly unhealthy. And then it just makes me terribly sad to say that. But yeah, absolutely. Um, now, so. What would you think is a more theologically sound way to view the cross outside of something like penal substitution? Or what would your atonement theology be in that instance? First of all, the cross is many things. Sure. It's not one thing. That, that this is one of the problems with penal substitutionary atonement theory. A, 
theory that really is no older. At the very oldest, you can't make it any older than a thousand years old, right? With ants, but 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 in its present form, it really comes to us via Calvin. So it's more like five hundred years old. Yeah. One of the problems, e- even if penal substitutionary atonement theory were an accurate description of what occurs on Good Friday, which I do not think it is. Right. Uh, one of the problems is, is that it seems to obliterate all other meanings of the cross. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And right. so PSA theory adherents say, well, at the cross, God satisfies his wrath by punishing his son. Well, we're done with it. We don't have to think. Of it. Right. Don't and worry about it anymore. Things, things like the principalities and powers mm-hmm. who are to be exposed and shamed by the cross get off scot free. Mm, yeah, that's true. So, so the, the cross then no, is no longer a public shaming of the principalities and powers wow. who claim to be wise and just, but they're exposed by the cross because when the Son of God came into your system, what did you do? You murdered him. Right. Yeah. No. People just say, no, no, he had, Jesus had to die because that's how God was going to satisfy his wrath. Right. What I say in that regard, well, I say a lot about it, but part <laughs> of what I would say is that is that that Jesus does not save us from God. Right. But Jesus reveals God as Savior. Yeah. The cross is not what God inflicts upon his son in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. Yes. In John's gospel, for example, in all of them, but it's, it's very prominent in John's gospel, Jesus says over and over and over, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say mm-hmm. what I hear the Father say. Mm-hmm. The Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that when Jesus prays from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Son is not acting as an agent of change upon mm-hmm. the Father. Yeah, yeah. The Father is immutable. The Father does not mutate. The Father does not change. What Jesus is doing is revealing what the heart of the Father is. That's so Jesus says, that's for, Father, forgive them, because that's what the Father does. Yeah. Right. And so that would be a lit. Of course, there's much more of this in, in my book, Sinners in the Hands of, of a Loving God. There's two chapters on this. Right. But um, I I think penal substitutionary atonement theory is a distortion and an unhealthy way of viewing the cross. And before somebody goes all crazy and says, oh, I'm a heretic. (laughs) The whole whole entire Eastern side of the church, the Orthodox church has never believed. Correct. Yeah. You know, ever. Right. So, so my soteriology is is deeply informed by uh, Christian orthodoxy, big O, Eastern Orthodoxy. Awesome. Yeah. Well, let's move. And on. so, when you, when you start calling the Orthodox heretics, well, then you know it's all <laughs> kind of messing a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move on to the next word that God spoke, which was mystery. Uh, so, the mm-hmm. way I understand it, this is a um, this is basically God pulling you away from this. Uh, reliance on empiricism and having to have every right answer and have every little detail figured out and instead embracing some ambiguity and the mystery of Christianity. Um, so one of the quotes from your book that I loved was, uh, Christianity is a confession, not an explanation. So my question from that is how can a confession satisfy a world that is demanding an explanation? Well, the world can demand what it wants. But <laughs> you see, Here's part of the problem. We have both Christian fundamentalists, which I'm not, right? But we know who we're talking about, and fundamentalist atheists are really two sides of the same empiricist coin, right? That we think that all that can be known in the great phenomenon of being is accessible through the five physical senses. And that if we simply apply a scientific method, we can arrive at all truth, no matter whether we're talking about physics, uh, astronomy, or theology. And I think that's mistaken profoundly, um, because we're leaving out the possibility of revelation, Mm -hmm. that God can make himself known to us. Let's, let's, Let's take it like this. 
So let's say that uh, just for the fun of it, let's say that Joey's an atheist. Just <laughs> I mean, work with me here. And, and Joey and I, we work at the same. We work at the uh, we work at the at the uh, Walmart together. All right. So 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 one day, you know, Joey and I are having lunch, and and I say something about the Bible says this or that, and Joey says the Bible. <laughs> Why do you believe the Bible? And I said, well, it's the Word of God. Hey, it is not. It's just a book written by a bunch of you know ancients, and it's mm-hmm. just filled with fables. And I said, and so we get in a little argument. And Joey says, "Well, why do you believe the Bible?" And I, 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 well, I, and, he, and I, maybe I say something. I try to get out of that, you know, uh, conversation. But then I go home and I begin to wonder, why? Why do I? Why do I believe the Bible? And so I buy some pop apologetics books, you right, know, right. Josh McDowell or or the Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, right. and I start reading and I kind of bone up on them and I memorize some things and. A week later, I go back and I say, hey, Joey, here's why I believe the Bible. <laughs> I, I give my little arguments, you know, little things that, that I have actually just cribbed from McDowell and right. Strobel. And sure. The problem with that is it's entirely disingenuous. Yes. Uh, the Bible was already in some way sacred and authoritative in my life before I read any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. What I what I fail to recognize is I believe in Jesus because Jesus has been revealed to me. Mm. I cannot prove that, and it cannot be disproven. I can testify to it and can be believed or disbelieved. The only foundation we can build Christian faith on is the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. Right. The moment we decide to build on some other foundation that we already all agree upon, that is a rigged game mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's yeah. going to end up with, with somebody saying, see, you can't prove Christianity, therefore it's false. Right. And I just simply refuse to play that game. Right. And I say, look, I have I know of no scientific theory that is any threat to my Christian faith. None. Right. I, I'm I'm all for it. I mean, tell me about how the human species came to be. Tell yeah. me that the universe is 13.8 billion years old, give or take 0.04%. I believe that. Right. And I accept that. Sure. But I also know that the five physical sense organs are not the totality of how I know something. Yeah, right. Because mm-hmm. I also know that Christ has been revealed to me in what we generally would call our heart. I don't mean sentiment and emotion. I mean a part of us with which God communicates directly. And modern Christians are ashamed to speak that way, mm-hmm. but they should not. Right. Because most people know that love is real. Now, a hardcore materialist say, no, love is nothing more than a chemical response. Really? Right. <laughs> really? Is that right. what you believe? You see, and this is what the this is what the masters of suspicion were all suspicious of. Masters of suspicion, that's uh, is that Ricoeur's term, I think it is, for uh, Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud. And they're all they're called the masters of suspicion because they're suspicious of the reality of altruistic love. Mm. Nietzsche says, nah, man, it's all about power. And this talk of Christian love that is a slave morality, it's a way for the weak to manipulate the strong. Right. Marx says, Yeah, it's all about money. Freud says, No, it's all about sex. And they don't believe that love is real. You know what? I believe love is real. I believe God is love. Yeah, But I can't prove it. I'm not going to be able to take you into a laboratory. I'm not going to be able to, you know, get my telescope and see there, there God just left of Neptune. Right. And right. I'm not going to do that. But by, but most people are not actually demanding that of us. Uh, we simply bear witness to that, which is our experience. And that's why I say Christianity is a confession. Not an explanation. We will explain what we can. Right. Sure. I mean, I mean, I think that that there are. I think the resurrection might be, probably is, the most reasonable explanation for the empty tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Right. But that isn't why I believe it. Mm-hmm. I believe it because the risen Christ has been revealed to me. Right. Wow. And and so I think we need to be a lot more comfortable 
Yeah, you think about with mystery. I mean, you think about um, kind of the kind of the, the. And what's interesting is is that cutting edge physicists, people that deal with quantum physics and things like that, are are already comfortable with mystery. Oh yeah, <laughs> of course you have to be. Yeah. You know, the, the, the it turns out the more we learn about the actual fundamental uh, nature of being, mm-hmm. it's crazy, and it's very mysterious. Yes, um, the height of of you know like logical positivism and the idea that if we can just learn a little bit more, then we'll have all the mysteries of the universe solved would have been <laughs> at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th centuries. Right. And you think, and just think about things like, like the Sherlock Holmes, they were called mystery novels. Right. So there's no mystery. It's elementary. My dear Watson, you daft one, <laughs> you know, you can't, can't you see, you just figure it out. Well, that kind of, fiction is no longer particularly engaging right Right. because actually most of society has moved beyond that and we're already comfortable with mystery and and so that's when you know that's why we have things like the x-files and lost and uh, what's the newer one stranger thing yes and because i'm not saying those are, are are an actual depiction unnecessarily of reality but it is recognizing that within the heart of people there is an understanding mm-hmm. that there are things that we cannot fully explain or as blaze pascal said the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing awesome. right and so yeah. well well thank you for that and um we'll have to move on uh quickly now to the next word brandy you want to ask about uh Eclectic? Yes, I'm glad you said eclectic because I was worried I was going to pronounce it wrong. <laughs> I know the word and I know how to say it, but here we are. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, basically my understanding of eclectic was that uh, Baldor was moving you to embrace the traditions and beliefs of Christianity as a whole rather than just your one subset that you were uh, taught in. Um, so, Brandon, go ahead. So, um how did you decide on what aspects you wanted to start practicing and what you wanted to pass on when it came to different denominations, traditional worship, uh, liturgy, different things like that? Well, here's my predicament. I am the founding pastor of a non-denominational church, right. which I don't even believe in. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it's a great idea to found a church essentially when you're 17, yeah. you know, and then officially when you're 22 without any kind of real training. And I don't think the idea of being non-denominational is a brilliant idea, yeah. but it's just what happened. I mean, I, I'm not defending it other than to say you had to be there and right. it happened. So once I began to discover a wider world, theologically and ecumenically, I, I embraced it. And I, I'm just not here to say, I mean, the, the way I look at the body of Christ like this, I'm not saying this is the way it is. I'm saying it's, it's my lens. Right. I look at the body of Christ as like a menorah, a seven-branch candlestick mm-hmm. consisting of Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, uh, Anglican Communion, a mainline Protestant, Anabaptist, Evangelical, and Pentecostal charismatic. Right. Uh, I have learned to love all seven. I had one year, this is prior to COVID, where I spoke in all seven expressions, either in a conference or a church. Wow. I felt pretty good about it. Yeah. In one year, <laughs> I spoke at an Orthodox conference. I spoke at a, at a Catholic monastery. I spoke at an Anglican church and et cetera. Um, I love all seven. I could be any one of the seven. Yeah. I'm not fighting. I, I could. I could be a Catholic. I could be Orthodox. I couldn't be. I could be. I, I don't. I, it'd be hard for me to be a Calvinist. But that's yeah. just one <laughs> subset of Protestantism. Yeah. yeah. And so, and I'm a default Protestant. I'm not really protesting anything, but I guess I'm by default <laughs> yeah. Protestant. People think I'm Anabaptist, though I'm not officially. I, I'm certainly, you know, well immersed in the evangelical and charismatic world. Uh, and, and so I thought, well, since we don't 
word of life doesn't belong to anyone. Let's borrow from as much as we can. And um, I am always visiting other churches, worshiping uh, where I can. Um, I and he, and here's how I feel about uh, our our grandparents, which is okay. Orthodox and Catholicism. Yep. You don't have to be Orthodox. I'm not. At least I'm not. You know, officially, right. you don't have to be Catholic. I'm certainly not. But those are grandma and grandpa. Yeah. And you do have to be respectful. Yeah. Uh, you know, you go to the family reunion, and there's the the oldest ones, the matriarch, patriarch of the clan, of the family. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to believe everything they believe, but you better be respectful. Yeah, yeah. Because you just better, or or you just look terrible. There, there's no accounting for whatever it is you are, you know. Yeah. And I don't even know what you guys are, so I'm not even that. But <laughs> whatever version of infinite multitudes of Protestantism you found yourself in, mm-hmm. There's no accounting for us, except you trace it back to Catholicism Correct. and Latin West and Orthodoxy mm-hmm. in uh, in the Greek East, and and prior to 1054, they were all one thing. Right. So for more than half of our history, Orthodox Catholicism was the church. Right. And so I just have a lot of respect, and I've just I've just found it wonderful to to have. I've got these, I don't see them much since COVID. I haven't seen, I've seen some of the brothers at Conception Abbey, a Benedictine monastery near here. There's a, the sisters, the Benedictine sisters of perpetual adoration in Clyde. I know them even maybe a little better, but I haven't really seen them much in the last year and a half or more. Right. But, but they're dear friends. And we have a little game when I go to visit them, they read my books and chapter. They've had me come speak a few times and, They've come to our conferences, and and I go with I mean with these Catholic sisters, and I'm maybe with the with the prioress or someone like that, right? And we have a little game we play, and but we don't admit it's a game because it would ruin it. But we sit around <laughs> and we talk, and we go. I, I, I'll say, you know who the most messed up Christians in the world are? She says, no. I said. Said American charismatics. Let me tell you about it. They're awful. And I'll say all the bad things about my kind of what at one time anyway was my tribe. Right? Yeah. Right. And she'll go, let me tell you about Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> and she'll tell me how crazy and messed up Catholics are. And it's just this fun little thing we do. Mm-hmm. And um, so I believe in ecumenism. That's even harder to say than eclectic. Ecumenism <laughs> or being ecumenical. Mm-hmm. Um but but it doesn't mean we all have to. I'm not I'm not out there. I have no desire to turn an Orthodox into a Pentecostal, right? Or an Evangelical into a Catholic. I I am convinced that people find Jesus can and find Jesus and all of it. And by the way, uh, there are many people who defined the life of Jesus, left Roman Catholicism, and became a Baptist. Yeah. But I also know many people that left non-denominational American Christianity and found life in Eastern Orthodoxy. Right. You just have to respect these kind of movements sure. and not be threatened by it. And maybe, maybe, maybe some people won't like this, maybe abandon the search for the one true church. Yes. I, uh, I definitely feel I that. found the one true church and it's the church. The, yeah. Yes. The culmination. varied expression. Yeah. And so we just let the church be as it is. And and the only hope of real unity I know of is not to let's all return to Constantinople or let's all return to Rome or let's all return to, you know, the Anglican church. It's it's just to say we are one in Christ. Yeah. And our many expressions, we are one in Christ. Absolutely. And so that's been, that's been a great source of... Uh, joy for me is to become a very ecumenical Christian, eclectic. And so because word of life is, is a non, we borrow from all of those. I mean, my theology is so influenced by orthodoxy, but we have so many aspects of Anglicanism and in the way we worship in our church and the use of the book of common prayer. We do lots and lots of retreats at, at, uh, Catholic monasteries. My wife is a Benedictine trained spiritual director. Oh, wow. So, so, you know, yeah. So that's by eclectic. We're just borrowing from everywhere, not, not trying to fight 
this battle that our one little group is the one true group. Yeah. <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that actually leads me to my next point, which is uh, that you spoke on, or that God spoke to you about community and uh, how you in, how you realized that American uh, Christianity was so centered on individualistic uh, relationship with God, your own personal relationship with Jesus, and that a communal faith was, was being lost. So my question is, what are the problems that can arise from an individualistic approach to Christianity, and how can the church demonstrate a we over me Christianity? Well, when we say that American Christianity is too individualized, you could just say America is just too individual. I mean, that's yeah. something that American Christianity picked up from America. Right. Um, it's, it's a, it's almost a cult of individualism and it's, and it has a powerful myth behind it. And I'm here using myth as something that is basically not true. Sometimes myth is used as something which is deeply true, but this I'm using the word more in the sense of how it's <laughs> it's mostly untrue. Right. Uh, this is a thing we te- this is a story we like to tell about ourselves, but it isn't true. Um, I think salvation is best understood as a kind of belonging. Yeah. The primary term that Jesus used to describe coming into some form of salvation is the kingdom of God, which the moment you say that, you know, a kingdom implies a plurality. It's not, you know, one per. what kind of kingdom has one person, right? Uh, It's you're, you're joining something and we are invited into it. Um, I I don't think the Christian life can be lived alone. The the desert fathers had a saying, uh, one Christian is no Christian. Mm. I mean, it is inherently a communal life. Yeah. Uh, if if you set out to say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna live the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that it's nearly impossible to do as an individual. Yes. It takes a community of people. That's right. That right. are committed to that. Um, what has happened in America, sadly, is that the church has been made uh, an option. So everything is about you know going to heaven when you die. Pray the prayer so that your sins are forgiven so you go to heaven when you die. Right. And and that's the entry point for so many. And then we are always trying to sell them on the up, optional upgrade mm. to actually being part of this gathered community around Jesus called the church. Right. And people are saying, well, yeah, but am I still saved? Yeah, you're still saved. <laughs> okay, well then... And yet the early church fathers would say things that would be highly offensive to us today, but I think we can unpack it. They would say there isn't, they did say, there is no salvation outside the church. Mm. Well, I wouldn't want to understand that today as unless you are a member of X, Y, or Z church, or more likely would be, unless you are a member of my particular (laughs) understanding of what the church is, you're going to go to hell when you die. That's not what I mean at all. But I mean the fullness of experiencing the saving work of Jesus is only experienced Mm. in a community together. Right, right. Not as a lone individual. And the church is, I mean, the church is the most unique gathering in the world. What else is like it? First of all, there's nothing remotely close. Even if you want to count other religions, there's nothing remotely close close to the diversity of the church right yeah. churches all over the yeah. world all kinds of people but even just if i take word of life church here in saint joseph missouri it's a gathered community that meets on sundays primarily i mean we gather other time but you know we, when we gather on sunday the lord's day right uh we have gathered around nothing other than our common allegiance to jesus christ yeah we don't have common educational backgrounds, common interests, political beliefs even. Uh, we're all over the map on that, but we come together. And, and, and so in my experience with church, I develop, well, first of all, I'm, I'm drawn into community with people that, let's be honest, I just would never hang out with. Right, yeah. yeah. Or, yeah. Or, to, or to say more humbly, they would never hang out with me. <laughs> right. You know. Right. But 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 over time, I find myself around people that that other than at this Jesus level, I really have nothing in common with. Mm-hmm. But I learned to care for them, and I learned to love them, and they learned to love me, and we bear one another's burdens. Um, can you go to heaven when you die with other church? Yes, but is that what salvation is? Mm, right. Is that all it is? 
No, I think I think it's uh, the whole, the goal is to be if I'm under if I'm reading my Bible at all correctly, especially the New Testament epistles, we are to be conformed into the likeness of Christ, and that is not a solo project. Absolutely, you just that's just not going to happen by yourself. Yes, it takes that gathering of other people. Uh, now, as you know, with COVID and everything like that. You know, starting in 2020 and kind of coming into 2021, online churches become more and more normal. How can we maintain a strong community whenever, you know, we're being discouraged from meeting together? Yeah, heck, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure that's something that you've experienced. It's so hard right now. Yeah. Uh, And even outside of COVID, just like, you know, the fact that it's becoming more normal to just attend a church online, you know? Yeah. Even some people just only attend a church well like yours online only basically um yeah <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm just gonna be very forthcoming i'm gonna just be honest and tell you what i think yep early on i mean first of all word of life has had an online service from when it, i don't even know when it started from whenever it was like possible mm-hmm. and i never paid any attention to it I, I just resolutely ignored it. <laughs> and, uh, but then all of a sudden this thing happened. Well, that's the only way we could do church. And still, I didn't like it. And I decided, well, this is just a, an emergency measure. And as soon as we can quit doing this, we will. Right. Oh, yeah. But then something happened. And I couldn't deny it. And I'm, I know I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I know I'm going to contradict <laughs> myself. I, I, don't, I don't know what else to say. Right. There's more than one kind of emergency. Yes, there is, you know, the COVID emergency and people couldn't gather. And we know about that. We started this whole podcast talking about why are so many people falling away? And I didn't answer that question, but I, I acknowledge that there are complex factors at work and it is a genuine phenomenon that yes. you can't just ignore. Yes. And I began to hear dozens and dozens and dozens of testimonies. I mean, not just not just somebody tweeting at me, but I mean, had written out long things or had talked to one of our pastors and he related to me of people who were they were uh, they were just about done mm-hmm. with Christian faith. And word of life online was a lifeline for them. Right. And it kept them in faith. And I and that got my attention. I thought, well, it is an emergency. So we went ahead and said, all right, we'll have online membership. All the while knowing that there's there's a part of me that wants to resist that, but another part of me that says, well, wait a minute, we've got a crisis going on here. And right. this is going to keep people in the faith, and that's what we're going to do. Okay, that being said, I think, remember, Christianity is a sacramental religion. Yes. Um, and so people say, well, you know, what do you need to practice Christianity? You need faith and maybe you need a Bible. Well, no, you also need water. Yeah. And you need bread and you need wine. Yes. Because uh, we are not those that proclaim as the Gnostics that salvation comes from knowledge alone. And the great goal is to escape the prison of this embodied existence. No, mm-hmm. we are Christians who claim that God is redeeming all of creation and that the culmination of that is the resurrection of the body. So the body is not rejected as bad. It's good. Right. And, uh, and, and we are the body of Christ, not just, you know, the, those that line up with the idea of Christ, we, yeah. we are embodied. So I think that will always have, um, uh, Credibility, that's not the right word. It will always have uh, a, a primacy mm-hmm. to okay. do that. But, but I want to be careful. Just I understand this is a very, I mean, the future is rushing at us so fast. And we're having yeah. to that's just, right. I mean, uh, I mean, what we're doing right now, you understand that when I started Word of Life Church 40 years ago, this would have been like something out of a science fiction movie. And we're doing it right now. And And I'm still the pastor of that one church. It hasn't been that long. (laughs) Right. Well, so so we have to be a little bit nimble and be able to adjust. Yes. But 
for people to gather together in the flesh, in person, lay hands on one another, break bread, share communion. I don't think that ever is not the optimum. Yeah, right. But but it's going to be supplemented with all kinds of other things, right? I get you. Well, we are coming very quickly to the end of our time together. It has been the fastest hour of my life, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had to skip a bunch of questions, but we would love to get to talk to you again sometime to get through yeah. those. So the last invite word. me back. I know I, I've I've got a I've got to go to church and have a meeting because yeah. I'm a pastor. <laughs> right. The last word for a little you know teaser for everybody is revolution, but we will have Pastor Brian back on soon to talk about that word and kind of have me on for that, and we'll talk about postcards from Babylon because that's really what revolution. Yes, is about. absolutely. Is about. We will do a hour long deep dive on that one word alone. Yes, so, yes. I, 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 I will. I will give that to you if you just let me go because you know I got a. I got a oh, meeting, yeah. and there'll be nine we, other people waiting on me, oh. and they'll look at me when I walk in the room like. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for all of your time and insight and wisdom. Um, we have absolutely loved having you on the podcast. Everybody, make sure that you go and pre-order. I believe it's available for pre-order. Correct when everything is on fire. Yep. Perfect releases yep. in November. Get it on pre-order. I am going to be doing that as soon as my paycheck hits my account. <laughs> and uh, as always, guys, thank you so much for joining us on the All Things Reconsidered podcast. Um, if you enjoyed uh, today's video, please subscribe to the channel. Uh, like the video. Leave a comment. Uh, questions that you want us to ask Pastor Brian next time we have him on the show. And um, yeah. if you feel so led, we do have a Patreon. Patreon, yes. All Things Reconsidered. Um, yeah, that's a shameless plug. But we were just talking about community, and we have an awesome Discord server where we, you know, try to do life together through the internet. So <laughs> come be a part of everything we're doing. Pastor Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, Joe, you got anything for us before we sign off? I just want to say thank you. Your, your books have meant a lot to me, so thank you for, for doing what you're doing. Well, sincerely, Joey, Brandon, it's, it's been a delight, you know, being with you. I, I, like your, I like your vibe. I like your energy. <laughs> Uh, you seem like cool guys. Where are you? I have no idea where you are. We are in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah, we're right by the Smoky Mountains. But all right, as always, that is the All Things Reconsidered podcast. And uh, we will see everybody next Monday. Thanks, guys. Bye.